Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Okay. Here we go, everybody. So, welcome to The Modern Hotel and Bar. This is Modern Campfire Stories. It's going to be a monthly event that takes place on the second Monday of each month through October. We're going to have Idaho writers primarily here. Fiction, poetry, nonfiction, possibly some screenplays. And it'll take place here on the patio. We got a little bit of a breezy weather, but I think we're going to be good. Not so bad as it was earlier. I'm sure it will be a little warmer next month. I believe July 16th or 14th is that Monday, but it's coming up in about about a month, exactly. So today is actually Bloom's Day. Are you guys familiar with the novel Ulysses by James Joyce? And that entire, yes, okay, that entire novel takes place in one particular day, on one particular day, which is actually June 16th. June 16th, yes, <laughs> 110 years ago. And each year on this particular date, people celebrate Ulysses as a modernist, stream of consciousness, very strange, very wonderful novel, big. It's kind of a rite of passage, as my friend Andrew said earlier, to actually read the novel. And so Phil Bodie is gonna start us out tonight and read a passage from the very beginning of Ulysses that gets you into the uh, literary mood for the evening. And then I'll introduce Mr. Uh, J. Ruben Appleman and then Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes. So without further ado, I give you Phil Bodie. I will say this before we do get going. Um, obviously, it's a reading. We'll do our best to keep it, you know, down to a dull roar. Um, there are servers coming around taking drink orders and uh, food orders, which is just fine by the readers and by us. Uh, but do be courteous, of course, um, and pay attention as best you can. And um, yes, Mr. Phil Bodie. Thank you, Christian. So this is from the very first chapter of Ulysses. And uh, here we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Stately plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, Entroibo ad alter di. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch! Come up, you fearful Jesuit. Solemnly he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and faced and blessed, excuse me, and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country and the waking mountains. Then catching the sight of Stephen Dodalus, he bent he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dodalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him. Equin in its length, 
and at the light, untontured hair, grained and hued like a pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror, then covered the bowl smartly. Back to the barracks, he said sternly, he added in a preacher's tone. For this, O oh dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine, body and soul, and blood and ounds. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents, one moment. A little trouble about those white corpuscles. Silence, all. He peered sideways up and gave a long, low whistle of call, then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Chris Domos, two strong, shrill whistles answered through the calm. Thanks, old chap, he cried briskly. That will do nicely. Switch off the current, will you? He skipped off the gun rest and looked gravely as watcher, gathering about his legs the loose folds of his gown. The plump shadowed face and sullen oval jowl recalled a, a prelate, prelate patron of arts in the Middle Ages. A pleasant smile broke quietly over his lips. The mockery of it, mockery of it, he said gaily, your absurd name, an agent Greek. He pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over to the parapet, laughing to himself. Stephen Dodalus stepped up, followed him wearily halfway and sat down on the edge of the gun rest, watching him still as he propped his mirror on the parapet, dipped the brush in the bowl and lathered cheeks and neck. Buck Mulligan's gay voice went on. My voice is absurd too, Malachi Mulligan, two dactyls, but it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Tripping and sunny like the buck himself. We must go to Athens. Will you come if I can get the ant to fork out 20 quid? He laid the brush aside and laughing with delight cried, will he come? Jewin Jesuit. Ceasing, he began to shave with care. Tell me, Mulligan, Stephen said quietly. Yes, my love. How long is Haynes going to stay in this tower? Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. God, isn't he dreadful, he said frankly. A ponderous Saxon, he thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English. Bursting with money and indigestion, because he comes from Oxford. You know, Dautilus, you have the real Oxford manner. He can't make you out. Oh, my name for you is the best. Kinch, the knife blade. He shaved wearily, wearily down his chin. He was raving all night over about Black Panther, Stephen said. Where is his gun case? A woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said, with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther? You, sh you save men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If, if he stays on here, I am off. Buck Mulligan frowned at the leather on his razor blade. He hopped down from his perch and began to search his trouser pockets hastily. Scutter, he cried thickly. He came over to the gun rest and, thrusting a hand into Stephen's upper pocket, said, Lend us a loan of your nose rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show by its corner a dirty, crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor blade neatly, then gazing over the handkerchief, he said, The bard's nose rag, a new art color for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you? All right, thank you, Phil, and thank you, James Joyce. And yes, thank you guys for showing up this evening. There is actually a cocktail on the menu called the James Joyce that is delicious. Phil Bodie, hold it up. 
Um, <clears throat> James is, Jameson is involved, so do order that. It's $8 from Remy and his staff back there. So I want to say thanks to a few people. First of all, Radio Boise is here. Radio Boise. Or I should say Boise Radio. I always invert that. Boise Community Radio. Um, so they are here actually recording the event for a podcast um, that will be up, uh, I believe, on their site soon in the next couple of days. And then they're hoping to air it live. Or, well, I shouldn't say live, but they are hoping to air it on Sundays um, in the afternoons between 2 and 4. So this is actually going to be a thing on the radio, which is fantastic. And the Modern Hotel, first of all, I mean, first and foremost, it was their idea to add to their summer music series something of uh, literary culture. So. They actually gave me a call and asked, after doing Story Fort um, with Tree Fort this year, if I would help them put it together. And they've been fantastic and super generous. And um, I would say give them a round right now. I'm not sure if Aaron or Bruce from Rediscovered are here this evening, but they will be here in the future supporting the event and um, selling some books and actually just advocating for this reading series, but I want to thank them. Um, and Michael and Polly and Remy from The Modern are the ones. And uh, yeah, second Monday through October will be you know this reading series. And the next two folks who are going to read will be the poet Carrie Webster, who teaches, at, has just recently taught at Boise State, has taught and does teach at College of Western Idaho. She's a Whiting Fellow, she's a fantastic poet, and Nicole Cullen, who is a young writer who just published, uh, well, she's published three or four stories, and actually her third story ever published won a Best American Short Story Award, and that actual story is in the Idaho Review, and it's set in the Sawtooth Range, or up that way, and she's gonna read that in July, too. So those two will be together a month from now. Um, our first reader tonight, though, is Jay Ruben Appleman, a man I've known for a good 10 or plus year, 10 plus years, I would probably say. And I've always admired his work and his work ethic. And just, he is a man who just is into it. This is really not, a, you know, there's no apologizing for what he does ever. And uh, that's how he goes about his writing. It's fierce and wonderful. And I'll read the bio here of him, but just know that he is, uh, his heart is always in this stuff. So, so Jay Ruben Alphaman has spent the last 10 years working as a film writer, scripting and producing documentaries such as Jen's Pulver, Driven, which is with Warner Brothers, and Playground, a film about child, the, the child sex trade. And the executive producer on that was George Clooney. All the last year, he's hosted the writer block, Writer's Block on, radio, on a radio show, on Boise Radio, um, interviewing writers, artists, politicians, reporters, ex-porn stars, and any other manner of folks who want to tell a story. His writing projects and research, they're focused on issues related to commercial sexual exploitation, child endangerment, related law enforcement issues. And they've earned him a spot as a guest lecturer at Boise State in the, <clears throat> well, speaking to human trafficking for the Honors College. His work has been featured by NPR and the literary reviewer, Andre Kudrusko, um, um, American Public Media is the story with Dick Gordon and by the Glossy Arts Quarterly Bomb, which oh, they featured Alman's as a 
Appleman's Make Loneliness as an international editor's pick. He has received multiple writing grants, including a prestigious State of Idaho Writing Fellowship for investigative writing. He currently works full-time as a fraud investigator for the <coughs> medical insurance industry, which I'm sure he will write a book about soon enough. Um, his project that he's been working on the last five years, I'll let him explain it more than I will, but the opening is pretty, uh, it's ominous. In 1977, a man fitting the description of a suspected serial killer tried to abduct Appleman from a shopping mall outside of Detroit. He fled and told no one. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Rubin. Um, so I, I'm really nervous. Uh, I've, I've spoken in public a lot and, and done, um, spoken to large audiences about weirder things than this, but for some reason this, this is, a like my hometown place with a lot of people that I, I recognize and, um, the book is really important to me. Um, and what he was talking about, it's a, it's a, Nonfiction book that I spent five years writing, and um, you know, I haven't talked about it much. People know that I've, people that I know know I've been writing it, and I haven't just really haven't been public about it. And so, um, I'll probably do a lot of staring down. Um, if I if I start to look up, you'll you'll know I'm getting loose. Um, but if that doesn't happen, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll just keep looking at Matt because he's going next, and. He'll maybe do that thing where you put a gun to the guy's head who's painting the painting and tell him he's done. And that's how you know when you're done as an artist. <laughs> okay, well, let's thank, thank you to The Modern for putting this on. It's super cool. When I, when I still drank, this was the best uh, place to be drunk. And um, uh, when I got sober, I stopped drinking four and a half years ago. Uh, this was the best place to be sober. And uh, thanks to Chris for doing this thing. Um, and thanks to the Idaho Commission on the Arts for that grant he mentioned. Uh, it came at a really integral time. Um, when I was working on this, this book, trying to solve, uh, basically I was trying to solve a, a, a cold case. It was 30 some odd years cold. Um, and I had no help and I had no idea how I was gonna do it. And I got this grant from the Idaho Commission on the Arts. It was $5,000 or a fellowship, it's called. And um, uh, the Boise Weekly did a little article about this big. And the sister of the last victim in this serial killer case saw that article online and um, managed to get me uh, thousands of pages of FOIA documents that cost her family thousands of dollars. Um, so that grant um, not just kept me going as a writer, but um, gave me a massive amount of, of information about this case that nobody else had, um, which was really cool. Um, you'll hear about it now. I'm just gonna read really quickly sometimes to try to, you know, I don't want you to have to pee and not be able to. Um, <clears throat> this, this starts with a quote from Al Greenberg from his poems. What we begin with is a ticket which reads all the way. It does not read feel free to wake up from this whenever you please. <laughs> <laughs>
The book is called 37 Winters. When I was a kid in the 1970s, a man tried to abduct me. He was about 35 or 40, and I was seven years old, on the tail end of a couple years stretch when multiple police departments surrounding Detroit were hunting for a kid killer. Two boys and two girls had been murdered, all of them white, all with brown hair, like me. There were posters everywhere with a composite sketch of a suspect and a sketch of what was presumed to be his car, a compact blue gremlin with a white hockey stripe up its side. They never found the guy. He had seemingly taken kids at will, held them in his lair for many days, and then extinguished them at leisure. He was rumored to have washed their bodies with dry cleaning fluid and then set them back into the world like setting out a birthday cake full of lit candles, carefully and with a look of accomplishment on his face. The cops said the murders weren't about sex. Reportedly, none of the kids had been violated that way, but about power. There was a serial abductor out there swiping kids from their footing, like sweeping a few bugs into the kill jar in your garden. There was nothing anybody could do but keep their doors locked and ride out the storm. The guy who tried to snatch me had been posing as a security guard in a drugstore. He wore a rust-colored blazer, a crisp shirt, and a dark-colored tie. He strolled the end caps and occasionally looked around noncommittally. He locked eyes on me in the candy aisle while I was stuffing a pack of bubble gum into my pants. I put the gum back and rushed out of the store. I crossed a parking lot. The man got into his car. I crossed a major intersection on foot, then tacked into my neighborhood and strolled alongside a curb where our little blue-collar houses saluted an empty street. A minute later, the man pulled up in his compact. It idled next to me a few feet away. The passenger side door opened, and the man reached out. I remember the details of his tiny automobile, the sound it made while it idled, and then the creak of its door opening on a faulty hinge. I remember the man's eyes being a greasy brown like motor oil. I remember the man's brown hair across the top, how it swept sideways. And I remember the sideburns he wore like sheets of felt down the edging of his face. Then my brain short circuits. And what I remember is a cigarette dangling from my father's lip on the back porch of our house in full summer. His wife beater t-shirt hugging his chest his Playboy magazine draped over a $5 lawn chair while he did biceps curls with a barbell, 25 pounds on each end. I remember my father taking my mother by her shirt and whipping her to the ground in my room, and how later that autumn my father's shadow became long across our windows and kept my family sealed inside. Nobody on the outside knew we were there, but we did. It's autumn 2010, and I'm standing in the exact spot where 10-year-old Christine Mihalik was found dead as the deadest weeks of winter in 1977, her now plum-colored face a muted beacon in the freshly fallen snow off the side of a wooded cul-de-sac 30 minutes from the more slushy detritus of Detroit. It was 34 years ago that Christine had been snatched, exploited like a new toy, and then re-gifted to the world as a mere conjecture of what she'd been when new. A mailman had discovered Christine on his regular route here in Franklin Village, only 10 minutes from my boyhood home. He'd banked his mail truck and walked towards swaths of color off the side of the road. There was no blood at the drop scene, but he'd been drawn by Christine's coat, slightly frozen to the mannequin of her torso. The mailman 
a homely guy in his early 30s, stood over Christine's body, then made hurried footprints in the snow back to his vehicle. At the time, Franklin Village, even beyond this street, was still very wooded, pocked here and there with chimneys that built downward into great rooms that found fireplaces with dogs snoring next to them, balls rolling across the hardwood flooring, the smell of bread being baked, and more or less families still intact between the walls of these architecturally sound homes. Franklin Village, at least metaphorically, should have been hanging from a Christmas tree back then, encased in glass. When the snow fell, you could hear somebody moan from five houses down. It was that quiet inside its orb. Nobody died in Franklin Village until they were old, and Christine didn't die here either. She'd been killed during captivity somewhere else, then driven around for a while and dumped here like a stack of newspapers hitting the curb in a Dickens movie. Christine's autopsy would show her to have been nicely fed while in captivity and then asphyxiated probably by the killer's bare hand, squeezing her nose and mouth to trap the, er the air. The murder term for this is burking, which involves the killer restraining the victim's torso like a bear hug, one palm cupping the victim's face like the bell of a candle snuffer closing on its flame. Burking leaves very few physical marks, if any. I don't know what Christine's parents thought at the time, imagining their daughter being killed in this fashion, but I can guess that the thinking part of them was mostly turned off. Violence just pushes against us. I can stand at the crime scene with a flip cam I've bought, which I'm doing at this very moment, surveying the topography of Christine's last impression on the earth, but it's like watching pebbles at the bottom of the lake. You don't think a goddamn thing, you just feel. This was January 2nd of 1977 that Christine was found. This was the day after New Year's Day, which wouldn't be important except that the first victim, Mark Stebbins, was abducted the day after Valentine's Day, and that the second victim, Jill Robinson, was found the day after Christmas, both of them during the previous winter. The fourth and presumably final victim, Timothy King, would go missing shortly after Christine is found on the evening before St. Patty's Day. My own history with those years around the killings was dark, there was always violence in our home, and the drywall seemed to pulse with a sadness from the holes that had been punched through it. Am I making this up about the pulsing? Here's a fact that I can ponder with accuracy. My father's right fist would sometimes arc into the wall, and when he'd head out for the night, there'd be a hole between the studs. I'm trying to do this without reading into things much. My feeling is that the killer wasn't caught because human beings were on the hunt. We think we know something when we don't, and it leads us astray. For instance, my memory of the drywall, is it real? I feel like it is, but if I go on a hunt for the truth in my family, family and find I'm wrong, what then? It will be the same with this case. At some point, I'll ask myself, what is evidence and what is not? What is conjecture, like the stencil of Christine in the snow, and what is truth? And that's how we'll come to understand this together, one bullet point at a time, the way I've been, make, that I have been linking out these murders on my wall, the pictures of the long and recent dead thumbtacked to the thinning plaster. So there, I got a little wordy, but um, a lot of what the book does is it talks to the reader a little bit um, in the way that like, mm, eh, I don't remember does. Um, there are other books that do that. Uh, 
And <laughs> I think maybe just writing down the bones, do that. I don't know. There's like some writing manual that, that engages the reader in that first person sort of way. And, and um, I'm trying to engage the reader a little bit. Oh, it's the things they carried, the Tim O'Brien book. Um, I'm trying to engage the reader a little bit in the hunt with me along the way because I know that it's a little dark. And um, I want the reader to sort of feel like um, this isn't really about the murders, it's about them. Um, and you get that sense throughout the book that it's, a, it's about figuring out your, your, your own personal struggle, you know, and plowing through it the way you survive murders in your community or murders wherever. So anyway, sometimes there'll be talky like that. And I'm going to continue. <laughs> Here are some things that I know are a fact. When my family was running late for a party once, my father threw my mother into the floor. He was wearing his suit. She cowered beneath him in a corner, covering herself from the threat of his continued lashing. I sat on the bottom bunk of my bed and stared at the television. I had a switchblade stashed into the coils above my head, just under where my brother slept. I never thought about using it on my father, not in that moment as protection for my mother or in any other moment. I was too afraid of him. But I thought about using it on everybody else, the people outside my family, for a lot of days afterward. A few months later, I burned down my backyard. At school, I threw a book of matches into a girl's lap for taking my queen during a chess game. I hadn't thought of her dress catching fire before it slightly did. The first time I hurt myself intentionally, I'm a grown man. I'm in my late 30s already. I stand in the bathroom mirror and slap myself as hard as I can with my good hand against the right side of my face. My right ear rings. It sounds like a butter knife toasting the rim of a wine glass. The slope across my jaw turns red. The second time hurts more, but not as badly as I'd expected it to. A stripper had hurt me more with my belt once, asked me to take off my shirt at the stage, told me to lift my arms, spun me around while snaking out my belt. She'd slashed me across the back a dozen times, about 10 other men in the bar watching us, some of them laughing, some of them glaring at me like I'd stolen their thunder. I'd gone home and looked at my back in the mirror, slave marks, puffy like burns. I hid my back from my wife for a week while it healed, and I'd felt dirty and good at the same time. When I smack myself in the face years later, it's a different feeling. I do it out of necessity. I'm so overwhelmed, so full to the brim with sadness from everyday life that it's the only thing I can do to come awake. My fingernails leave marks when I pull them across the swelling I've caused, two white tracer lines dragging through a patch of red above my stubble. I make a fist with my right hand, and when I punch myself in the cheekbone, I get a bruise beneath my eye that never fully clears up. I've broken a blood vessel. Years later, there will still be a red squiggle. I turn on the fan in the bathroom and get into the shower, and I haven't even been touched yet. I haven't been marked by the Oakland County child killer case. Ted Lamborghini and all of the other douchebags surrounding the OCCK are just names out of old newspapers that I barely remember. I have no idea that in a few years, I'll be pulling up their case files and beating, my, beating the crap out of myself in ways that nobody can see. Four dead kids, all of them scratched from memory and tossed into the puddles like a bad lottery ticket, and everything everyone, anyone knows about the case is a lie. One of the suspects in these killings, Christopher Bush, was rich. 
bearded and obese, still living in his parents' upscale home in his late 20s, Bush was a child porn addict with multiple pedophilia-based charges pending, which his wealthy parents had been attempting to have squashed from his record. A few weeks after being polygraphed about the murders, Bush was found dead in his home, shot through the forehead by a rifle while lying atop the sheets in the upstairs bedroom he'd become a man in. The police report says Christopher Bush's death was a suicide. The temptation is to think he felt shame or wanted to avoid prison. The police were on his tail, and so he offed himself before an institutional finale, you'd think. The temptation is to think he's their killer. And yet a police report from that suicide negates the presence of gunshot residue on this suspect, meaning it's unlikely that he fired a weapon. Four spent cartridges were found at the scene, but there was only one hole in the suspect's head. The police report from 1978 has no mention of blood. If you watch enough television, you know that nobody gets shot in the head without bleeding. I've held that report in my fingertips about a half dozen times so far. I keep thinking about it, waiting for the word spatter, but it never appears. I've stared at the photos of his reported suicide scene as well, emailed to me here in Idaho from a computer in the Midwest, about a dozen shots of the room. Christopher Bush, a big sheet-covered lump in the bed, showing no blood at all, not even soaked into the sheets where he lay. It's my first night back in Detroit. I've come to study the case, and I'm staying at a hotel off the freeway, only a stone's throw from the first drop site where 12-year-old Mark Stebbins was found. I watch TV, and it's dull. The rain outside reminds me of things I don't want to think about. I get depressed watching rain. After a while, I turn off the TV and contemplate calling an old girlfriend, E, who I haven't seen in years. E was the last girl I had loved before raising kids. She was small, only about five feet two inches tall, with an addict's darkness in her soul and an impetuous vein that teetered on exposing itself as madness. E was a little black-haired, white trash wildcat that pushed all my buttons, messed me up in my head for a while, and simultaneously made me want to slip my hand through the gap in her cut-off shorts. Sorry. <laughs> I'd, I'd spent so much time with E. I'd loved her deeply and wildly the way most people only get to love when they're young, but she'd become unpredictable because of her addictions. Eventually, I'd become mean inside from un unrequitedly trying to pin her down, or maybe I'd already been mean. That was a long time ago, and we've both raised kids had jobs of some sort, built homes we could trust for a period. I don't know what E's like anymore before I call. She doesn't answer her phone and I leave a message. I tell her I'm in Detroit. I say, I just wanted to say hi. I hang up my phone and I know I only called her because I'm still dark inside. E texts me back right away. Where are you? I'm in a hotel, I text her. Come over. She texts me her address and I stare at my phone for a while. I haven't told E that my life is falling apart. I haven't told anybody this yet. The truth is that my marriage is in its last couple of years, maybe months. We've tried to make it work and can't. Right now, we're just riding things out until we can afford to live separately, until we can bear what the separation will do to our kids. 14 years is a good run, but when I think about splitting up, I still feel sad all the time. On good days, I feel empty. Even if my marriage has been a lousy one, it has still somehow offered me the warmth of pretending that I'm not alone. There are portions of each day in which I believe in the truth of this, 
that I have companionship in my navigation through the many bouts of depression that have dog-eared my adulthood. And yet there are equal portions each day when I understand myself to be willfully clinging to a lie. My wife is less companion, more accomplice to our accomplice to our failures. She talks about getting out all the time, and those words root themselves like an instrument left inside after the surgery of our dialogue, tumors growing around the pain. I text E that I miss her. I don't know what else to say, and I don't even know if it's true yet, but when I think of E, I think of the life in me somehow coming back. I don't think of all the things that hurt. I think of how good I felt in the moments that were good, that were like flashes of fire before the burnout took hold. It's only 30 minutes later that I'm standing on her tenement porch, the keys to my rented SUV gripped in my hand. She opens the door and stares at me for a moment. Then she touches my forearm, and it's like being pulled midair across a canyon, and I don't dare look down. Later that week, I drive to the Cass Corridor and park out front of a bathhouse called the Schwitz. A relic from the 1930s, the Spitz is built like a warehouse made of concrete, nondescript, 20 feet high and about 50 feet long with no windows and a single door. Weeds growing up its side, it's the type of place you could disappear inside of. Most buildings in Detroit are like this, vacant seeming even if they're not. The exterior is unpainted for decades and crumbling with decay and the inevitable irreverence of abandonment. But the Schwitz exterior presents an illusion, and intentionally so. It's supposed to look dumpy. Things happened here and continue to happen that specifically require a lack of notice from passers-by. Back in the day, members of the Purple Gang, known as the Jewish Mafia, took saunas at the Schwitz, ate steak dinners, and got smacked on the back with soaped up mops of grape leaves. Years after that, the Schwitz became more illicit, where 1960s homosexuals could mingle in privacy, have furtive sexual encounters in the dimly lit rooms, and then go home to their wives and day jobs. Right now, it's a place for swingers to visit in the evenings, mostly middle-income professionals from Oakland County who come to enjoy a nice drink, indulge in witty remarks about the economy, and then swap partners in body fluids for a few hours, writing off their flirtations with the underworld as a dining expense on IRS forms. Having been in existence for around 80 years, it's safe to say that running the Schwitz is good business. There's very little overhead, and as time has shown, consenting adults will pay a premium for one or two hours in a dark corner with no witnesses. A man named Bill took me to the Schwitz when I was 15. I weighed only 115 pounds. He wanted to molest me, one can assume. While I showered, Bill soaped up his hands and put them on my naked back, rubbing the lather in before I could stop him. I don't know what you say to something like that, how you can look at it 25 years later and indulge in the calisthenics of language. What you want to do, what, are, what you are compelled to do, is fight. Right now, it's daytime, and I step out of my rented SUV and walk around a massive pothole full of water and motor oil. There's no traffic. I stand in the street and videotape the building. There's a small handwritten sign on a stick in the ground that reads, Schwitz Parking, and then an arrow pointing around back. Without that sign, you wouldn't know where you were. The houses up the street are partially boarded, most of them written off as abandoned, but you can tell that the squatters have taken over. 
Adorning the porches up the block are half-fixed children's bikes, makeshift laundry lines of electric wire, and the occasional gas station issue hibachi. There's a man sitting on a concrete stoop 50 yards away, staring at me. When I walk to the back of the building, I think about Timothy King and the darkened route he'd taken in Birmingham to go home. He'd left a pharmacy through the back door at night, crossed a poorly lit parking lot, and never got to finish his five-minute walk. Somebody stuffed him into an automobile. The details of this are not known. What is known is that things happen to us with an eyeshot of the rest of the world, and nobody recognizes it as a happening until it's done. E's ex-boyfriend hung himself in a closet with his own belt by lifting his legs off the ground. I believe his parents found him hanging like that, but in the dead space between the act and the discovery of the act, there was nothing. One night in college, while I was drunk, I was walking home through an alley and I kicked a Macy's window. It shattered and I ran back to my dorm and went to bed. When my sister was 17, she started taking more speed and then ran away from home. I was at a mall with my friends. I was 13 and I hadn't seen her for a while when I said, check out that ass. When the girl in the mall turned around, it was my sister. Outside my high school, I saw a kid sitting by himself and I thought, he's a loser. Two days later, Two days later, there was an announcement over the PA that he'd shot himself. We had a moment of silence. When I was seven, a boy pushed me on the playground, and I hated him for that. That year, his whole family died of carbon monoxide poisoning while they slept. Here's the most beautiful feeling I have ever had. It's probably the same as yours, but I was drunk when it happened. I just want to be better than that now. I want to feel joy, but the only way I know how to is to feel the darkness beforehand. When I used to go on benders, I'd find myself with friends I didn't like or understand. I drank in the filthiest bars I could find. I cornered up with women who had no morally legitimate business being with me, nor I being with them. It was fun, but I didn't engage with things for fun the way other people did. I engaged for the feeling of impending disaster. I wasn't raised to believe that I could do things for any other reason than to dwell in the minor disaster pieces that accompanied effort. Staying home was a charade then. Taking care of my kids was a charade. I did it perfectly, but the way an actor can nail a role and still not be the person he's portraying. Learning how to love something holy seemed impossible because I didn't know that loving holy required accepting love as well. And so I buried myself neck deep into smoky strangers. <clears throat> In the back of my mind was always the memory of my father punching my brother so hard that it left dots on his back from the meshing of his little Detroit Lions jersey. Or the memory of weed smoke and my brother's friends when they were 11. Or the glass bullets of cocaine I had found in a wicker basket my dad kept or how my sister used to sit in her bedroom all the time and just cry for what seemed like no reason. Or the stacks of Hustler magazine in our garage and how I burned down our backyard looking at one of the centerfolds and playing with matches at the same time, how sex and fire mingled. 
or how my uncle used to try to seduce my sister with his body language and the tone of his voice, how he did it in front of us, how he didn't think it was wrong. There was something about my darkness that E completely understood. No matter what I was doing, E had already done worse, lived through worse, felt worse about herself. But our relationship was cosmic, too, if you believe in that. I always felt my skin vibrating in her presence, even when she'd done something hurtful. The best was never having to hide, never needing a bar or a warehouse to conceal my sins. I could hold E and cry to her and know that she was there. I could fall to pieces and still get up. You don't get that feeling after a hand job in a vinyl booth at the Schwitz. You release and then you walk out into the night and get into your car. You want to smoke. You want to almost get robbed in the parking lot. You want to stick a knife into somebody. You want to drive your car into the river. But none of that happens. You walk out of the Schwitz and you go home. And that's sometimes worse than anything violent. There's a huge mega freeway of ache inside you and it's empty and you're the only one on it. And nobody knows it's there besides you. And if you tell anybody, your whole life is over in a blink. And so you don't. Whoever killed these kids had that feeling inside. I know that. The cops will argue differently that psychotics don't feel but my hunch tells me to follow the loss. I'm not even filming anymore. I'm just standing here in the street and nobody's driven by. I want to see E. So that's it. It's about half of what was here. I'd love everybody to actually gather a couple questions, if you'd like, for Mr. J. Rubin. If you'd like to answer a couple, we've got about five to ten minutes of that. You guys can obviously get up and get a drink, get some food. Matthew will be up in a little bit, but questions will be awesome. That was fantastic, and it's going to be tough to follow up, but I think Mr. Haynes can do it. So. Do you have questions? It is my, or, or like gang symbols if you look at it sideways. I spent five years, she asked if I solved the, 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 the murders. I spent five years on this uh, case and um, I think the book offers a real strong, um, uh, at least one way of looking at who, who done it, so to speak? Um, I haven't made any sort of qualms about that. That um, uh, and and, and um, uh, I've said on the radio before and stuff, so I can say it now. Like it's not. Um, I don't believe it's one lone serial killer um, thing. And and I'm pretty. Uh, there's a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. And I, yes, the book does say names and stuff. In fact, most of the book is about the case. This seemed like mostly about my stuff because I didn't know how do you tell a quarter of a case and then sit down. 
So I thought I'd just tell my stuff. I kind of pieced some stuff in there. But most of the book is real, a lot more in depth about the case and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, because when this, I don't know if you caught the beginning, but when I was seven, this serial killer, or this, I mean, this person tried to abduct me. And then later, when I was in my 30s, I thought, I wonder if it's the same dude. And so I started researching. The internet happened. And, well, I didn't know. I mean, no, I knew nothing until the internet happened. And then I, I sort of thought, like in 2005, I thought, I wonder what this was all about. Like, somebody tried to take me? It was so weird. And I had kids. And, um, you know, there's a line in the book about it. You have these cheap-ass little plastic locks on your windows, you know? They cost $3 at Home Depot, and you screw them in there, and you think you're safe. And I remember thinking about that and thinking about how somebody tried to take me, you know? And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents because I was shoplifting. I thought I was going to get in trouble. And so I didn't tell anybody. And that's actually the number one thing that abductors say to your children or other children, you know? Uh, you're going to be, somehow you feel culpable. You're going to be in trouble if you get away or if, you know, or if you tell that this happened. And the number one thing they say is, you tell anybody, I'll kill your family. That's the number one thing anybody ever says, to, abductor ever says to, to a kid they've abducted. And um, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about these little locks on our windows and I just, you know, my life was falling apart and I thought I, I could do something and I could write about this case. I don't know. Well, I guess this is my cue. Yeah, so Good thanks a lot. Our second reader of the night is Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes. And once again, I want to say thanks for coming out. I want to remind folks or just say, you know, make folks aware of an event that's going to be going on next, or this coming Sunday, I guess. Uh, Claire Bay Watkins, who's a fantastic short story, short story writer and is a pseudomy novelist, um, is going to be reading at the cabin outside, 7.30, front lawn, free event, come down, you will not be disappointed. She's one of the best, so. I've known, yes, for, <laughs> who are we applauding for there? I'm not sure, but for Carrie, for Carrie Seymour, everybody, Carrie Seymour. <laughs> All right. So, um, yes, Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes has been a good friend of mine, fantastic writer for, year, for years, and I'll give you his bio real briefly and what he's going to be reading from, but yes, following uh, Mr. J. Rubin, it'll be fantastic. So, Mr. Matthew R.K. Haynes is an assistant professor of English at the College of Western Idaho. He was a State of Idaho Writing Fellowship. He won a State of Idaho Writing Fellowship in 2010, and he was named Honors Professor of the Year in 2005 and 2011. Yo, man. <laughs> he earned his MA in fiction and, and MFA in creative nonfiction from Boise State University. His first novel, Moving Towards Home, was published in 1999. Subsequently, his work has appeared in several anthologies and journals, including Soma, Literary Journal, 
not sure I can actually pronounce this, but something in Hawaiian, O-I-W-I. How do you pronounce that? Oevi, okay, I should have asked you that first, but um, Native Literature's Fringe, Yellow Medicine Review. He's been a finalist for the Faulkner Award in Nonfiction and a Writer's Digest Award and the Writer, Writer's Digest Award in Fiction. His collection of multi-genre writing titled Shall We Not Go Missing has been chosen for the Wayne, commonly ye, Westlake Monograph Series that is forthcoming from Kuliana Press. So, these are Hawaiian press. He's going to be reading a lot about Hawaii. So, um, he's going to be reading short fiction um, from a new collection, which basically asks the question, uh, you know, what is Hawaii about? Why do we go there? Why is it a, like, a, like a bucolic vacation spot and also kind of a gritty uh, kind of place at odds with their, their image, I suppose. I've read a few of these stories and love them. So without further ado, I will bring Mr. Matthew Haynes. Holy, this thing is huge. <laughs> um, it's weird. Oh, right. Sorry, Boise Radio, Radio of Boise, whatever your name is. Um, so. <clears throat> I was going to read from the new collection um, monograph series that I, it's coming out from Kuliana Press, but then I decided not to. Um, so I am working on a new collection um, of stories that take place in Hawaii, and it's tentatively called Blue Hawaii, and yes, I know the Elvis connotations of that, um, and I accept them fully. Um, <clears throat> so in complete contrast to the darkness of J. Reuben Appleman, uh, that's not true. Um, it's called Blue Hawaii for a reason. So these are um, short shorts, um, and I have four of them. Um, and um, as Christian said, uh, the collection is trying to deal with um, our perceptions of Hawaii um, as travelers to, as livers in, um, people of the place, natives. Um, so I have uh, the first, well, I have four stories, and they come from different voices. <laughs> I'll stop explaining them now. <clears throat> so this first one is uh, called How She Says Goodbye. Um, oh, I do need to preface this. All of the stories in the collection attach to each other. So the genesis story of this collection is uh, one that came out in um, Native Literatures about two years ago called One of Those Times. And it was about a couple who um, left um, their home on the mainland to go on their second honeymoon one of those stupid vow renewal ceremonies. <laughs> Sorry if you did that, I apologize. Um, but it's one of those, and they come to Hawaii because they feel like you know, Hawaii's gonna make their relationship better. And it does for four days, because that's what Hawaii is good for, <laughs> making you feel good for four days. And then, um, and then um, yeah, and then it doesn't work out, and, um, and bad stuff happens, and um, anyways, so her story, it was told from the woman's point of view, and, and then this is his story, the husband of the relationship, and what he has to say. And again, it's called How She Says Goodbye. Dan doesn't want to come up for air. 
He wants to keep watching the raccoon butterfly fish, which looks like a perch but with a bright yellow body and orange and red stripes fanning the lateral line of its torso and deep purple shading around its eyes. They are connected, perfectly connected, he thinks. How else could they both be in this ocean, floating, staring at each other, those eyes like the small round windows of a brilliant breathing cathedral? The fish inches closer, its small fins flapping and spinning, and Dan knows this is a sign, that Kona is the right place, that this is the right time for them. He feels it in his gut. Then suddenly, the fish is off into a maze of sea rock and seaweed into the darkness. Dan rushes to the surface to tell Charlotte, but she and the kayak are gone. She said that she'd be right in after him, and he wonders how long he'd been under. He wonders if she's gotten seasick. Then he thinks that she might have needed water or food or lotion. So Dan treads in circles, first stretching his sight to the horizon, the endless blue meeting the endless blue like him in that little cathedral. When he looks inland, it is beach and cars and whiteies of which he is one, and a slope of green flora and houses tucked in between. There are probably many more houses, but the green is so thick. Dan squints, looking for a two-piece pink bathing suit, trying to discern if Charlotte is one of those whiteies. Then all the green makes him nervous, like she could be in there, lost, abducted, and taken into that thickness. He wants to swim to the shore as fast as he can, but he stays, waiting. He isn't sure she understands just how much he loves her, how much it hurt when she said, for fuck's sake, Dan, grow some And being the man he was, he did. He grew the big that squeezed out a proposal for a remarriage, a vow renewal, a second honeymoon. He knew it was just the thing. She'd been in a funk maybe for as much as a year, he supposed. He tried flowers and dinners and movies with buttery popcorn, but that wasn't enough. He didn't feel as free as he had when they met over 15 years ago, times when her going up an escalator got him hard, or smoking a joint and streaking the golf course was ever an option. Those were things lost to time. But it never crossed his mind to leave her, even when she got depressed and distant for what seemed like no reason, even when he had to sleep on the futon for 29 days, and even though he wanted kids as badly as he had ever wanted her, but knew she couldn't carry them. He went to work and came straight home, listened when she felt like talking, drew her baths and combed her hair. He became her husband and her sister, though not her best friend. It's hard for Dan to remember life before Charlotte. He can remember being a kid, but that doesn't matter. Those were times before there was any real choice. Then there are the thin memories of college, of books and schedules and rooms, the same underwear and going commando because back then he was too lazy to do laundry, the rec center, the French film class, but just going to the class, no recollection of any one of the films a trip to Canada, a couple of boys' weekends at Bruce's cabin, one of which Bruce's twin, Barry, offered to give him a and he just laughed and walked away. Parties and parties and parties, and how he tried to a girl named Joe, her name so masculine, reminding him of Barry, which made him go soft. But what he can't remember is what any of that felt like. He tries to conjure the sense behind the images. Nothing comes. Is it as if someone else's photo book were loaded into his brain? So that pictures are flat and empty, 
like shadows of memories. All he has left in his head is new Charlotte, who has reblossomed since they arrived, the sun and surf, the food and drink, smiling and flirting, and then this, he thinks. Could he love her more than to remember how years before, after her father's funeral, they sat in a motel room drinking Tanqueray Travelers when a commercial came on with a family snorkeling and she said, I want to do that before I die. And here they are, or here he is. Dan treads long enough that the sun moves to the horizon and the water chills. He thinks he must stay, he must let her come. He squints again, but there is no one. Not their car, not even a car. And as he lets his gaze soften, the green hillside turning dark blue and gray, he remembers that past her smile, before he keeled into the water, he maybe saw something in her eyes, and he thinks that might have been pity. And he wonders how he could have pleased her any more than he wanted, and thought he already did. And then he realizes she is gone, left him there in the ocean on their second honeymoon. And he smiles with disdain and thinks that this is nothing like a futon. And the weight is an anchor that pulls him under where he looks for that fish in the dying ocean light. And he swims through the sea rock and the seaweed until he knows that it too has gone. So Dan floats, letting the pearls of bubbles escape until there are none, searching for that last bright memory and how it made him feel. So I dedicate that to J. Ruben Appleman. <laughs> JK, LOL. Um, so I'm going to do that really quick. Uh, just kidding. Um, um, Let's keep going. <clears throat> this is called uh, Give Us What We Want, um, and you'll hopefully probably see the attachment. John John pointed from the Kona coast out to the sea just as he was going to say something important, something I thought was going to be, brah, brah, let's f***ing leave this place, go to the mainland, shack in Florida, just you and me. Instead he said, what the f***? Because something caught his attention out there. I couldn't look because I was focused on his neck muscle, so tight it was like a rib. Then he stood up and said, fuck, what you think? And looked down at me sitting on the bleached log, my feet dug into the sand, a dented beer can clutched in my left hand. He was blocking the sun, so when I looked up, his whole body was dark except for light at the edges, cutting between his curly brown hair. Like, is this what people saw when they were out in the desert and Jesus gave them water and shit? Oh, you the kind, he asked. But I hadn't smoked in a week because it confused me for days like I couldn't think right or couldn't find my thoughts and I felt like those were the only things that belonged to me. I was living with my Auntie Kay because Mom OD'd on junk and was taken to Kahimohala on Oahu and Dad just packed up shack and cut while I was with Mom in the hospital. And he took it all, like even my socks and drawings of Hawaiian birds I did in the eighth grade that were pinned to the wall. I spent whole days sitting in my empty room, wondering why. What'd you see, I asked. John John spun around and pointed. The water was calm, and a mile out was a dark speck bobbing, the rays of arms taking long, long strokes. 
Because out there, he said, and I nodded, denting the beer can a bit more, dreaming that the guy was heading to New Zealand or Australia and wishing that it was me and John John that we had those kinds of balls. Hope he makes it, I said. He won't, John John said. Shark meat. Then he walked up the shore to a plastic grocery bag filled with fridge ice and beer. His shorts had loosened enough that a tan line showed, and that reminded me of how many long, mostly empty days we'd spent outside together. John John was graduated, but I dropped out when it all went down with Mom. He was my second cousin and also lived with Auntie Kay. We talked it out one night about how he was the son of Tommy and Leilani, and Leilani was the daughter of Elima, my mom's older sister. Tommy cut town when Leilani was arrested for plotting to bomb the Royal Hawaiian, got herself all caught up in the sovereignty movement. Elima was in Florida, and there was no money to get John John over there. We'd both been with Auntie Kay for six months. John John just a couple of weeks ahead of me, and I had this feeling like Florida was never going to happen for him. So when Auntie Kay didn't have us picking up dog or feeding the chickens or spraying the lines to keep out the roaches and centipedes, we were at the beach, and as often as we could, we were drinking. Being outside so much kept us dark. The only difference was that John John was raised going to the gym and had a thick, beefy look to him. The combination of all that was too much to handle some days, and I thought that maybe this day I was going to break and hug him too long, or kiss him, or try and hold his hand. And when I was all spacey from the paka, I let myself think he'd be fine with all that. Tommy called again, John John said, chugged the rest of his beer and returned to the bag for another. You like? he asked. Shoots, I said, and he tossed one. F said he was going to take one more month. He cracked his beer and chugged that one, then crushed and pitched it into the surf. You gotta get out too, boy. The statement seemed so distant. John John had said this shit before, but it was never, boy, you gotta come with Flor to me with Florida, with me to Florida, which made me think that he was trying to make a break, a clean break, that maybe he got to Florida. When he got to Florida, he'd even ditch Tommy and change his name and cut his hair and stop drinking and get a real kind job and disappear into it all. Maybe that was the only way to get reborn. Not sure if I want to, I said. There's nothing here, brah, he said. I told John John that everything was here, what was left of family and the ocean, and that was all we needed. Once I said it, though, I knew it wasn't true. He had no family worth anything to him. Auntie Kay was just a place to crash, and the ocean was just a barrier between him and all the possibilities. We were not standing on the same land. I stared at him, hoping he'd get that I was saying, me, I was still here. But it was just a fantasy, like him getting to Florida. John John snatched the last two beers from the bag and threw me one. He walked to the water, letting the small tides wash up to his calves, then continued walking to an outcrop of rocks. Now that he'd gone, I noticed the day was hot, and I tried to ease back into the sun a bit. John John and I shared a room, and there were nights when I'd hear him beating off, so I would too. There were other nights when he'd read to me from Heads by Harry, because it all takes place on the Big Island, right? And we talk about how we should write about our lives and all the shit that we'd gone through. Sometimes, when the occasional rains would come and we stayed indoors, we'd sit in the bedroom and I'd draw pictures of John John on lined paper. He'd do the David pose and the thinker pose, or like he was throwing a spear. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be with John John or just didn't want him to go, like if I was going to be stuck here because I felt like I had to be, then I didn't want to go it alone. Hele mai, John John called from the rocks, waving his right hand to come. I didn't want to 
look at some seashell, and I didn't care if he found another shark tooth, and I was feeling pretty buzzed. I stood up and looked over. Brah, he said, maybe shocked that I hadn't come running. So I slowly walked over along the wet sand. The bit of cool felt good. No need hurry, he said, his hand on his hips. John John grabbed my arm when I was close enough and pulled me to a small crater in the outcrop. In the bowl was a green sea turtle the size of a family walk that must have come in on a wave and got stuck. It was waiting for the water to come again and catch its ride home. We couldn't be sure how long it had sat there, but we'd been at the beach since 10, and it was way past noon. Shit, brah, I said. I've got to weigh 100 pounds. Help me get it to the water. Nah, John John said. You sacrifice one hono, you get one wish. One night, when... Mo one night, Mom, when Mom was high on junk, she told me that when she was a little girl, her dad and uncles took her to a certain beach during the night and hunted honu to make turtle soup. She said they'd straddle its back, pinning the flippers with their knees, grab right under their chins, pull back and slit their throats. Then she said, her eyes red and gooey, you know, boy, the buggers cry. I knew I never wanted to see a turtle cry. John John Bra, those are just stories, I said. Come on, help me. I reached down and put my hands under one side. The belly of the shell was tacky, so it must have been there for a while. John John bent down and moved in close, putting his hands on my shoulders. His eyes were red and gooey too, but for different reasons. Bra, maybe our wishes come true, he said. It seemed like a whole day went by, or a whole season, as we stayed just like that, silent and steady. And I can't say if it was his hands on me, or his eyes on me, or how somehow I saw the future where John John kept drinking and started in on the ice like his old man and turned wholly bad, or the idea of my wishes coming true. But I broke the stillness with the nod of my head. John John wandered off digging through the bushes and under Kiave trees. I went back to the bleached log where I'd left my beer, drank and filled it with seawater to wet the turtle. Its fins moved, and it looked relieved, and that made me feel so f***ing bad, so much that I wished I hadn't given it any water at all. When I saw John John walking back, I almost said, no, brah, no. But I felt like I had to follow through with the decision I made, like all the men in our families had done all their lives. John John had a sharp piece of lava that had probably been used for digging into coconut, and that's how I tried to think of it. This is like digging into a coconut. He straddled its shell and grabbed its head. I thought it might try to snap. I wanted it to snap. And then he said, His voice booming, then jamming, and then he jammed the rock into its throat. The turtle jolted and its flippers trembled and it hissed. So John John kept stabbing it until there was plenty of blood, until it stopped shaking, until we... We heard, all we heard was its heavy breathing, and then nothing at all. I had closed my eyes for a while instead of looking away, the sound of John John and all those words still echoing. When I opened, I saw strange, thick tears from pearly black eyes. And then I wanted a sign. I waited for the sky to go dark and rumble, or the ocean to rise, or Mauna Loa to blow its top, but nothing. John John fingered some of the blood and put a stripe across my forehead, then a stripe across his own. We sat there like that, and suddenly I was so scared. 
more scared than when mom tripped and when dad flew? Because what if our wishing two separate things canceled the other out? What would we be left with but a dead turtle between us? That is dedicated to, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> to Jay Ruben Appleman. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, so so um, this next voice is um, another um, kind of Hawaiian voice. And um, they are connected by the character of Leilani that was only in there briefly. Um, and. Um, I'm, I, so one of the things I'm trying to do in this collection is write these really short, short pieces. Some of them are flash fiction. Um, this next piece is under a thousand words, so that would be considered flash fiction. But um, many of them are only six pages. Some pieces in the collection are 15 pages, they're longer, but I'm really trying to, um, I guess, crystallize moments quite a bit in these pieces. Um, so this one is called... Um, Nobody's home, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, my face feels so good. <laughs> um, did I put lotion on today? <laughs> um, it's called Nobody's Home. <clears throat> it was 1996 and Leilani was back again. The first time it was college in Honolulu, the second it was some spiritual shit on Molokai. This time, she'd gone off to San Fran with some haole she hooked up with at the Four Seasons after her banquet shift. He set her up with an apartment in the mission, then he'd come around a couple of days a week when she wasn't traveling. Lay waited tables at some Chinese joint called like Firecracker Yum or something. She sent me and Bert a postcard once of a seagull perched on the edge of a pier with the bay in the background signed Aloha Bradas, your baby sister. She was sure this was the one, this haole, but come to find out, he had a wife and a couple of kids. So she screwed the busser at the firecracker, then borrowed a hundred from him and got herself back to Maui. She just showed up at the house and didn't even ask about mom, but it didn't matter because mom had been gone for days, hitting it with her girls up Waikoloa, where all the burnouts gather in the government row houses. If you stand next to the banana hostel, you can hear them babbling about being poor and being brown and all the damn tourists. And it's weird because the tourists are right there walking around and buying and mom's one of the voices, probably talking trash about dad. She always says he abandoned us. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes not because I don't think he tried to get shot, right? But he made bad on some drug deal and maybe that's the same thing. Bird was the oldest and had a streak of dad inside him, but he stuck to working at the Payless shoe store and putting away small money and sometimes shacking up with a Portuguese girl he never brought around. But when he'd get high, he'd talk about shooting Brad, the manager, which we knew was all shit, and he'd laugh and blow rings into the sky. And then he'd get in Lay's face and call her a slut, and then he'd hug her and sing to her some stupid melee from back in the day and tell her he was sorry. But since Lay was back, and it seemed like something to celebrate, Bird dropped a five on three 40-ounce Mickeys, and we drove to Ka'a Point, smoked some paka, and crammed onto the tailgate of Bird's love. The surf was high, and the waves were pounding hard against the rock wall, and Lei was bitching about the haole, and Bird was saying that the Portuguese would never leave him because she was addicted to his dick. And I was thinking, 
that I wasn't sure if I loved mom or if I loved bird or if I loved Lay. And then Lay said, fuck, it's good to be home, without even pausing after fuck, like she had rehearsed it, like we could believe any return was something good. So we just chugged our 40s until Bird laughed and drummed the gate to his Chevy and said, I got a sweet ass Portuguese. Uh, so this is the last one, a little short here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the story that this is connected, so it makes a little more sense, because you'd read these in succession if you, were to have, if you were to buy the book that is not yet published, that is not yet completed. <laughs> um, you would read this story first, unless you're someone like me who would jump around, and then you'd be confused and have to reread the book, and you'd be irritated, which makes me think this should never be published. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> um, so this story is connected to a story of a woman who, um, it's called um, These Are Private Joys, and it's told in third person, and it's about this woman who has cancer, um, and she leaves Roanoke, where she works at the, um, at the Western Sizzlin, which is a barbecue buffet in Roanoke, if you've never been there. Um, and she um, leaves her family, her boyfriend and her parents, to just go to Hawaii because she has cancer and she can't think of what else she should do. And she meets a guy named Gary, um, and Gary lives in this, lives outside of Hilo um, in a place called Puna and um, lives on the beach in a blue duplex, a cinder block duplex, which is right on the beach down this road. Um, and um, yeah, so shit happens with her and, um, and she's gone. And he calls her sister when they first meet, and she likes that. And so this is actually an epistolary, it's a letter to her, and it begins with, it's called Losing the Moon. <laughs> sister. <laughs> I like that long pause right there. <laughs> Like, I wish there were a DJ wicked a wicked whacking that out. Um, okay. <laughs> Losing the moon. Sister, I remember when you found me getting high on whiskey and weed and we fell into something that wasn't quite love because almost certainly I was a stopover and you were a creature you didn't recognize. When you left for good that morning, I was awake but couldn't bring myself to stop you, knowing we only get as much time as any string of moments can offer before the knot slips. I took that whole week off and followed the pattern of you I'd come to know. An early rise, a cigarette on the lanai, staring at the sea, waiting for that dolphin you swore was a past you, closed eyes with deep breaths and elbows held high and pressed fingers to temples, carving oily paths through your curly hair. What you hadn't discovered of me was that past my leathery skin and tobacco lips and steely Dan and all my chill nature, a crater had formed from your presence. These things happen. So I stopped following you. It's no surprise that I hit the bottle pretty hard and kept Miguel and Mel at my side most nights 
when I get weepy and stumble past the glass door onto the lanai and into your old half of the duplex, they'd rub my shoulders and get me turned around. They gave me that family I never had. Weeks passed until I couldn't stand the pimples that had formed under my red beard. Then I stopped that too. I put an ad in the register to rent out your space. A local girl, 26, moved in with her 10-year-old. Sada was a mixed kind of pretty, Hawaiian and Filipino and probably Japanese. Her son, Amato, was shy and wore a cub's cap that he kept pulled down tight to his brow. I was never like that when I was young, but he reminded me of my kid brother, Paul, seeming so soft and fragile. Sada worked nights and the kid was left alone in that dark space. Do you remember when you woke to hundreds of cockroaches on the ceiling? That's what I imagined he was faced with all those nights, but I kept my distance. I'm not sure what her game was, but the men were coming and going, and there were nights when the music was so loud I had to kick at the wall. Then one Saturday, a storm blew in from the east. There were 50-foot swells hammering the North Shore. We got nothing like that, but the wind found every crack in this old building, and the waves pounded at the door. About 10 o'clock, I'd usually hear Sada pull up in her Honda, the belts screeching. I worried that the storm had caught her somewhere, and I worried about the kid, too. It had been a while since I worried, and it was nice in a way, and all that worry kept me up until midnight. I'd been watching QVC, wondering about all the people that might be sitting on their couches, ordering little things on the brink of sleep, when through the whistling wind and the gush of ocean, I heard the stringy squeaks of a violin. When I muted the television, it came clearly through the brick wall. Twinkle, twinkle. It was the kid, and he was playing it loud, over and over. I watched a woman petting large diamondy earrings that dangled almost to her shoulder, and I watched the red digits of my clock tick by, and I listened to the kid hit a sour note and start again, then run it clean, then start from the top. It seemed to get louder, but I couldn't be sure. I told myself, 12:16, because 15 minutes of that kind of dread, it was a dread, was okay, but 16 was too much, that one minute making the difference. The waves were still high against the back door, so I went out front and gave a quick knock. The violin stopped, but the kid didn't answer. I called in at him. Hey, Amato, it's Gary. I heard a second of string, then silence. You okay in there? Silence again until right at the hinge of the door. Is my mom with you? He asked. I wasn't a tender kid when I was young, but I remember wanting my mom even when she was alive. She worked her ass off so dad could go to school. When he finished and got a good job, one that meant we could go on vacations, she had a heart attack. I blamed dad until I was 30, though it was most likely genetic, and dad blamed himself too. So I was angry, Paul was soft, and dad forever carried grief and guilt until he died of a stroke. Like mom's heart, his brain just couldn't take anymore. Hey, she'll be home soon, buddy. It's this weather. Let's make some ramen, watch some TV, and wait for her, I said. The kid came out with his violin under his arm, and we fought the headwind to my door. It made me sad how comfortable he was, and that made me wonder about how little Sato was around. It made me want to protect him. I got straight to making the ramen as the kid sat on my couch, staring at the muted QVC lady who had moved on from dangly earrings to purple ankle boots. What is this? Amato asked. I stumbled a bit. It's a channel for bored people, I said. 
Why are you so bored? He asked. I just am, little man. I couldn't explain to him that my kind of bored had come from the pleasure I'd had right before it, these nights sometimes wishing life had never gotten so good. That's sad, he said, and he was right. It was sad for this one boy to be sitting around at midnight on a grown man's couch who was so bored with his life that he was watching a shopping channel. What do you want to watch, I asked. Star Trek, he said. Oh yeah? Like the one where the planet blows up or where they're searching for the bad guy who's like a thousand years old, I asked. The kid just stared at me, adjusted his cap a bit, as if he had no idea what the f I was talking about. I cut up some cabbage for the ramen until the silence was too uncomfortable for me. Who's your favorite character? I asked. I like Spock, he said. You know the one where he breathes in spores and falls in love and beats up Kirk? The kid was talking about the real Star Trek, not the new shit. I remembered that one and asked if he liked it because Spock was so uptight but then gets all loose and expresses all these emotions he'd been holding back for all those years. I guess so, he said and adjusted his cap again. I passed the kid the remote and got back to the kitchen where the noodles had boiled too long and the water had turned milky. I drained them anyway and made garlic wheat toast. The kid found some next generation and we watched the rest of an episode where Data, who always wanted to be human, has a switch turned on in his brain and goes crazy and tries to kill the crew like androids are not supposed to do. After, we watched Apollo 13 which the kid had never seen. I spent two hours answering questions about rockets and gravity and space and the moon, most of which I had no real knowledge. It was the moon the kid was fixed on, as if he'd never really thought about it being up there or how it affected the Earth. The kid was on the edge of his seat because he didn't know the story. He didn't know if Tom Hanks was ever going to make it back home. When Tom did, and when it was clear that Tom was safe with his family and the movie ended, the kid looked drained and disappointed. After a while of sitting, while the credits quickly rolled and the voiceover announced what was up next, the kid said in a concerned, questioning kind of way, so he lost the moon? Well, he didn't lose the moon, I said. He just didn't get to go to the moon. But he never got to go back, Amato asked. Well, I think he decided not to go back, I said. The kid rubbed his palms on his bare legs, then curled his fingers up under his shorts and gripped and said, this time in a sort of resigned way, so he lost the moon. Amato didn't care about the complexities of how Tom came and went, that the important thing was that Tom got home and was with his family and fucked the moon. It was simply that he'd lost the moon, and that's what really bothered the kid. It was 3 a.m. Should we call your mom? I asked. She doesn't have a cell phone, he said. Well, who do you call if there's an emergency, I asked. There's no emergencies, he said. And when Amato said that, it made me hurt. But there were no words of wisdom to make him or me feel any better. And because of that strange space, the kid kept talking and told me about how his dad put the cub's hat on his head when he was a baby but never came back. About how they lived all over the island wherever his mom could find a job. About how someone had left the violin at a hotel in Waikoloa village where she cleaned rooms. He never asked about my life. 
and I never gave it up. When his confessions went quiet, I surfed the channels until we found some anime and we fell asleep, and the kid, the kid on the couch, me on the chair, the one I'd spent nights upon, drunk and teetering. You know, you used to tell me that you'd watch me sleep there sometimes, and how quiet and peaceful I looked. And I can't stop wondering about how you sat there through those sleepy times and what it meant for you to stare at me. I awoke to a knock at the door, and when I answered, two cops asked me about the kid. I pointed to the couch where Amada was still asleep. Do you remember that small, small inlet where you used to swim naked? They found Sada there beaten and drowned. Her duplex had been trampled, the lamp and the lawn furniture you left scattered. How could the storm eclipse all that noise? I woke the kid, and he asked about his mom. I told him to go with the police. He tucked his violin under his arm and moved to the door, adjusted his cap, and I didn't see him again. For $90, I bought all three seasons of the original Star Trek and spent the next week watching them back to back. A different sort of crater had formed. Some nights, I thought I could hear that violin on the winds. And then one sticky night, the clouds rolled in and kept the heat of the day. The ocean stood still, and I could hear the cokey frogs singing all the way down to the shore. And all of that put together got me thinking. I just don't want you to feel bad about leaving or having come. We're always choosing one thing over the other. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Matthew Haynes. And once again, I'd like to open up to a couple questions. We have some time. You guys can hang out, um, you know, for as long as we, we want. I don't know, Radio Boise will probably break this stuff down in just a bit, but these guys will be around for a, a time. And once again, thanks for actually showing up tonight, the very first, the inaugural, you know, Modern Campfire series. So good. And on the 14th of July, we'll be back here um, with Carrie Webster and Nicole Cullen and keep your eyes peeled for that on the Facebook and the interweb. So, Mr. Haynes, if you have questions for him about the series, about living in Hawaii, about anything, here he is. Matthew. Yes. I actually, I think it's um, it's not it's not that I think I should be. It's that um, I mean, without getting all like writerly esoteric and all that crap, um, but kind of <laughs> um, like I kind of feel like I I just needed to. Um, I'm the kind of writer that um, that like there are just things that I need to put on paper, and I have like I feel like I have like really good ideas sometimes, but I can't write them because. They just don't feel like I could. They could come out of me, but I think other people should write them. <laughs> like I just can't do it. Um, but when I just feel like something needs to come out of me, they do. A lot of the stories I just kind of they come out of. Um, I guess how I think or feel about a certain space 
whether that be like an emotional space or a psychological space or a geographical space. And I don't think that me saying it is any better or important. I just think it's mine. That's all. Yeah, so um, when, I, when I wrote the Genesis story of this, which was one of those times about the couple that comes over, um, it was really my intent to, for it to, like, you know, they get to see Hawaii and the beautifulness, and they get to go snorkeling and whatever, and they stay in the big King Kamehameha Hotel in Kona, and that's great. Um, but I grew up part-time in Hawaii, and we were not um, wealthy by any means. And... Locals <laughs> are not tourists. <laughs> I mean, that's true of like a lot of places, right? When you go to Disney World, um, you are not from Orlando. <laughs> um, so it's different, but this is really different. Um, I remember talking to a friend once and she was like, oh, well, where should I go in Honolulu? And blah, 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 blah. You know, and I just love Hawaii because everybody's just so filled with aloha. And I was like, sure. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's kind of like, you know, they were like bomb plots um, in the 80s, well, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, locals who are part of the Hawaiian sovereignty movement who want to secede from the United States because they were illegally annexed by the United States. Um, I mean, they planned to bomb a bunch of hotels. Um, one was bombed, actually, um, on the Big Island. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of, in, in, in ways that peop, other people have done, no, I'm not comparing myself to Sherman Alexi by any means, but I'm saying like, like Alexi has done, I mean, here's this beautifulness and this place that people journey to experience this paradise, but it's on the backs of a lot of people. It's on the backs of a lot of people whose land has been taken away from them. And for generations they have suffered um, a lot of and self-inflicted, for sure. But um, that sort of cycle is very difficult for Native peoples to get out of. And yeah. <laughs> I'm really a happy person. Uh, <laughs> seriously. All right. Thank you very much. OK, well, thanks once again both you fellows for reading tonight. It was fantastic and a great, great turnout. So good. And it, yeah, it just goes to show you, yes, that uh, Boise wants to turn out for these kind of events and this, the power of narrative and honesty and all that good story stuff that I can go on about for a long time but won't. But uh, yes, a month from now, we'll be back right here. Thanks so much. Have a good night. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>